0: Welcome to the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. Bill Spruill is a professor emeritus Michigan Technological University, Houghton, Michigan, where he taught transportation engineering, public transit, airport planning, and hockey history. He is a member of several associations, including the Historical Society of Michigan and the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Author Association. He is a co-author of the airport textbook, Planning and Design of Airports, author of several conference proceedings on automated people mover systems, and author of three local books, Copper County Streetcars, Houghton, The Birthplace of Professional Hockey, and his newest book, Michigan Tech Hockey, 100 Years of Memories.
1: It is my pleasure to um, welcome William. He's going to be talking to us about his book, Houghton, The Birthplace of Professional Hockey. And before I turn it over to him, Just two announcements from me. Next month, we will be doing In the Night of Memory and we will be meeting on, I've got it right here in my paper, January 13th. So this one is a novel and we've got a couple copies here at the library and your libraries may have it too. So please, you know, check it out soon and start reading. Um, I read it and it's very good. Good, I haven't read it yet. So that is good news, Mary. Uh-huh. So that coming up in January. And then again, if any of you still need the women of the copper country, I'm happy to send you a copy free of charge. You get the copy, you get a bookmark, you get the reader's guide, free postage, it'll come right to you from our library. We've, I've got 30 copies to dispense and you are my people. I would like you guys to have them because <laughs> that's going to be our May uh, author and she'll be talking about the book in May. All right. Well, William got on nice and early, and we did a test. Everything seems to be working. So here he says his writing name is William, but we can
2: call him Bill. So welcome, Bill. Thank you. I'll just uh, get my slides going here. Thank you very much. Uh, and, uh, mine, mine is a little garbled. I can you hear me well or? Yes. Okay, well, that's fine. The. Uh... Well, it's fun to be part of the uh, UP Notable Book Series. Uh, when I was approached last spring, I just thought, "Well, December is a long way away," and uh, uh, but anyways, here we are. The uh, I guess to give you a background, myself, um, I'm uh, I'm originally from Sault Ste. Marie, Canada, and uh, graduated from Michigan Tech in 1970. Uh, went away. Uh, Earned a master's degree from University of Toronto and a, a PhD from Michigan State. About 25 years, ago, I returned to uh, Michigan Tech on, as a, a, a professor or faculty member in civil and environmental engineering. Um, and, and probably oh, early 2000s, I offered to teach a course in hockey history and culture. And that's really kind of got me into a whole new research area. Um, I was coaching hockey at the time, and a, and a colleague said, well, this new course they had at Michigan Tech called Perspectives on Inquiry kind of replaced freshman English, and they laid out a, a format of basically how writing uh, papers, uh, presenting papers, and critical thinking, and they called on senior faculty around the campus to, to, uh, to teach these courses, and we were to develop a um, a question and or a theme to it there'd be a uh, faculty members did one on the vietnam war the uh john wayne movies i did one on hockey history and culture and my question uh, late for the students was is there such thing as hockey culture and there is but that's what started me as i started to to um gather materials, and I was drawing on my youth, and uh, I'd follow hockey for years. I came across a clipping that said Houghton was the birthplace of professional hockey. Well, as a Canadian, there was a lot of skepticism. I couldn't believe it. So I spent quite a bit of time in the archives, in the library, to find this story, and now and joined actually a a Society of International Hockey Researchers to verify the story. so this pro- book project at uh, the Houghton Birthplace Professional Hockey started to, started to think about it many years ago and then started to put together materials, but it's one of those projects that kept getting put to the side until shortly after I retired, it came out. It was, I think it was 2019, that actually hit the streets. So, um, so now when one thinks of, of professional hockey, many will just think of the National Hockey League and when you, and the Stanley Cup. That's what probably, when people think of professional hockey, that's what they think of. Well, we're going to trace a couple things. We're going to trace the birth of professional hockey and we'll tie in a little bit on the Stanley Cup and the NHL. So for those who aren't familiar with hockey, well, you'll, you'll walk away with quite a bit of information tonight. So, well, there's always a debate when and where did hockey begin? Some think it was in Europe. Some say Halifax. There's always a debate. And I guess really you almost have to define what hockey is. Well, a group did, of the Society for International Hockey Research, did a few years ago to try and decide where hockey actually began. And and this gentleman here, James Creighton, is attributed to be the, I guess, the the father of hockey. He was born and raised in Halifax, civil engineer. I was a civil engineer. He moved to Montreal and worked on, on some civil projects in, uh, in the Montreal area. And he began to study law at McGill University. Now, he, he was, uh, uh, he was a, a skating instructor and I think he probably played a bit of what we call shinny hockey or pond hockey in Halifax. So he brought that, that knowledge and joined the Victoria Skating uh, Club in, in Montreal as a skating instructor. But because he, he played some hockey, he brought together a group of members of the club and some McGill University students and showed them uh, the basics of hockey. Then they decided, let's do uh, act, split ourselves into two teams and do a demonstration of a hockey game. So, as I said, the first organ- official hockey game uh, was held on March 3rd, 1875 at the Victoria Skating Rink. And then shortly after that, he published a set of rules. Uh, it was covered in the press. He explained the games to the newspapers and he published a set of rules, which really were the first set of rules for hockey. Now, this is just an artist's painting of uh, an early hockey game at, at the Victoria Skating Ring. The rules were quite different than they are today. Um, and, and the book, uh, the whole book, uh, birthplace book gets into the rules of the time. Well, hockey grew very quickly in the Montreal area and in Quebec City, in that part of Canada. The game was primarily for men and the upper class. Uh, and primarily it was athletic clubs it would compete against each other and, uh, uh, and then several leagues and tournaments took place in the Montreal, Quebec City area Miguel University soon formed a team and they were participating in these uh, in these tournaments there were Winter carnival in Montreal and there was a hockey tournament as part of, of the celebrations now Creighton actually graduated in law from McGill University, and he accepted position in Ottawa uh, with the civil service. Uh, so he moved to Ottawa. So Ottawa was just, just starting to, hockey was just starting to move into Ottawa area too. So he, uh, he joined a, a, an athletic club in Ottawa, but then he also formed a uh, it was part of, oh, formed and was part of a, a, a hockey team of members of parliament, other civil servants, servants, and they would play a series of exhibition games. The team was called the Ottawa Rideau Rebels. Now this person with the, the ball cap and the leg, sh- leg shirt, that is Creighton. Now, the interesting thing on this is that there were two members. Their father was the governor general of Canada. This fella here is Arthur Stanley and this fella here is Edward Stanley. The, name, the reason they got the name Rideau is they played exhibition games uh, at a rink on Rideau Hall, which was the Governor General's uh, official residence in Ottawa. And then they played in in a couple of them. And then they would host other teams from Ontario. The Governor General would host them. So it would be And then they also traveled. They would use the governor general's rail cars and travel to other parts of Ontario. So that's the famous Rideau Railways. Well, you can almost start to guess who who his father was, who the father was now. It was Sir Frederick Arthur Stanley. He was the governor general, he's from England. And the governor general in Canada is more of a ceremonial job. but he's appointed by queen victoria but when he came to can he'd never seen hockey before but he was fascinated by this game and it is uh, two sons and actually a daughter played hockey in the ottawa area he really loved the game he was fascinated by it and so um he really um uh, started to think was there something i can do to to capture this interest in in hockey in in uh in Canada, And so, at a, a banquet in Ottawa in March of 1892, to celebrate Ottawa's victories uh, for the season, he donated a hockey trophy to be awarded to the best amateur team in Canada. Well, many will probably know this trap. The trophy is called the Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup. And it's been nicknamed the Stanley Cup. Because Lord Stanley's name is on the cup, but you'll also see on the bowl, is it's Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup. So they appointed trustees, and they, it was a challenge trophy. So teams could challenge for the trophy several times during the year. And the trustees had a set of rules for the challenge. And uh, there's more in the Houghton book about the rules and the challenge and so on. So the first to be awarded the cup was the Montreal Amateur Athletic Association, a men's club in in the Montreal area. So it is uh, now, there's stories and many stories about Stanley Cup since. Books and books have been written about this particular uh, trophy. But the original one is this bowl. Now, as I say, is... Probably everybody in this audience knows where Canada is. But basically, it was really Ottawa, Montreal, Quebec City, and then it got to Toronto. And then as the railroads were built across Canada, the game started to be picked up by these small communities. And on ponds, as railroad workers would move across the country, uh, hockey kind of spread across the country. Um, and it really became a game, not just for the upper class, but the working class man would play hockey too. Now, there were also, at the time, there are a number of organizations or provincial associations set up that would make sure that the game remained as an amateur sport. And one of the organizations, very powerful, was the Ontario Hockey Association. And, and that really big and it it was um, it was Arthur Stanley, um, Lord Stanley's son, that was really the instigator of the Ontario Association. So if I go back to the Rideau Rebels, they toured Toronto and they really saw the excitement for a, a kind of a provincial tournament. And to organize that tournament, the Ontario Hockey Association was set up. But one of their one of their roles was to make sure that the game remained for amateurs. Well, there's a good story here. This is the uh, Berlin hockey team in the late 1800s. And uh, uh, Berlin is now called Kitchener, but this club or hockey club played their arch rival, Waterloo in a game in, I think it was 1897. And, Berlin beat Waterloo, and their manager. This fellow in the in the front in the coat. He was the manager. He was also the the mayor of Berlin. He ran onto the ice. He presented everyone on the team a ten dollar gold coin. The Ontario Hockey Association heard about this and said, "Well, you are. This is not amateurs. They are now professionals." So it, the team was suspended for the for the rest of the year, and then they had to appeal and. But, so this is the, is the uh, now there's a couple of key people on this team. This fellow in the back row here is John Gibson or Jack Gibson. We'll hear about him in a little while. And this fellow in the front row, his name is Art Farrell. He was from Montreal that played on this team. And he actually wrote one of the first books on how to play hockey, so. Uh, these be- were very powerful organizations and had, had great power, and, and if you, when you read the Houghton book you'll see that it, it influenced a number of the uh, uh, player movements and a number of things that took place in Canada, but always maintaining that it would be a game for the amateurs. In the United States, it took a little different route. Uh, roller polo was roller skating was very popular in the united states in this uh 1880s and there were league roller polo leagues and then in many parts of the united states um ice polo became popular The different set of rules than, than hockey but uh you basically uh they would be on smaller ice surfaces there are a number of different rules but this is very popular Ice polo was very popular in the Upper Peninsula in those years. There were leagues and, uh, um, uh, and and really ice hockey really kind of evolved out of it. And really in the United States, what happened was there was some uh, men's teams, men's ice polo teams in New York and Pittsburgh and some of the border towns. And, and then they, some Canadian teams would come down and play them. And often they play one game of ice polo and one game of ice hockey. And quickly ice hockey overtook ice polo and ice polo just about disappeared. So in the Copper Country, the first ice hockey teams were organized by a Canadian. This fella in Dollar Bay, a small community just outside Houghton. And there were several several Canadians that worked at the Hancock chemical plant that built, that made explosives for the mining industry. And these Canadians had learned the game in Canada and brought that excitement to the copper country. Ice polo was still popular, but a couple of key dates here in December of 1897, teams, Yates had brought his Canadians together. He showed a few of the locals how to play this game of ice hockey and they wanted to play an exhibition game Uh, at an outdoor rink in Calumet. The newspaper said the game made a favorable impression and is likely that a team would be organized by local skaters. This is what they want to do is elevate this game of hockey. Well, just a a week later, teams played at at a nice rink in Ripley just outside of Hancock. The game is somewhat similar to Polo, but not nearly as exciting and it is feared that very little interest Will be taken. Well, they were wrong. Hockey has been a mainstay of the copper country ever since. And really, by the fall of 1980, ni- 1898, the quotes from the papers are hockey will be the fashion. If you want to keep up with the times, play hockey. And so it, things really got exciting in the copper country. But really, uh, um, grew when Doc Gibson arrived. Now, Doc Gibson, that was the fellow from the Berlin hockey team. He was an out, born in Berlin, outstanding uh, athlete in several sports, uh, but he was suspended. He actually attended the Detroit College of Medicine, which is now Wayne State, and graduated dentistry. And while he was at the Detroit College of Medicine, he played on their football team, he was captain of the football team. He was actually uh, on their hockey team. So they actually had a hockey team uh, at Detroit College of Medicine at the time. And apparently the, that team played, traveled to the copper country uh, in 1899 uh, or so, just to play an exhibition game against the local team. Well, when he, so he graduated, he moved to Hope because at 1900, this was the boom area of the country What's the copper mining, and he joined a local hockey team. So this is Gibson in the front row here. And all the other players are local players. So Gibson was the star of the team. He showed them how to, to uh a lot of the improve as in team play. He became quite a spokesman for hockey and, and advocated his enthusiasm for the game and so on. He actually was involved in helping uh, train some Michigan College of Mines students how to play hockey. Um, so quite a, a fascinating individual. He's, at the time, he was really about only 21 or so. Well, that team won the UP championship. They beat a team from Sioux, Michigan, and claimed the UP championship. Now, the next year, he... Uh, Gibson brought a couple more friends he talked them into spending the winter in in Houghton and they had a a very good team so this would be the 1901-1902 team Uh, they won the upper peninsula championship again and then they beat a team from Chicago to claim the uh, championship of of the west western United States so this just a poster here to to outline those games. And you see, the game will undoubtedly be the finest game ever played in the West. The winner of this game played the winner of the East, which was a team from Pittsburgh. They never, they, they ended up tied, so they never really determined who the US champion was that year. It's about this time that James D. Or Gibson and D. must have met at some social event, and remember, the upper class but were still involved in hockey. They must have had a social event. The, the teams were playing. The first few years, they were playing at the Palace Ice Rink in, um, in Ripley, and it's it had capacity for about a thousand. Well, more people wanted to see this Portage Lake team, and uh, they couldn't get into the game. So Dee and Gibson really were convinced that if we built a new arena, we could hockey would grow even faster in the Copper Country. So Dee formed a a warehouse team or warehouse company to build a new arena and the new arena was the Amphrodrome. It was built on the open waterfront. This photo that is often shown is actually one of 1907 photo. They added this facade on the front. It was an armory and a ballroom but it had a movie set, it was just kind of a fake front on it, it's not, it makes it look like it's a brick front, but it was just like a movie set. Very, uh, very grandiose looking. Uh, it had seating for 2,500 plus 6,000 standees. The um, It was built, it, built in the fall of 1902 uh, and at a cost of $16,000. It was actually built in, in about six weeks, so a wooden structure. The first game played at the Amphrodrome was the end of December, 1902. Portage Lake played a team from the University of Toronto. So this is kind of the 1902-1903 team of Portage Lake. Gibson recruited a couple of his, a few more of his friends from, from Canada to join him, spend the winter with me in Houghton. And so uh, the game ended up, Portage Lake... One thirteen 13 to two. Uh, and University of Toronto were students of just, they were competing against McGill and some of the other top team, university league had formed in, in Canada at the time. So this was a pretty impressive team. Now this fellow on the front row, well, you've probably picked up Gibson already. This is Gibson. At the other end of the first row here of the seated row is a fellow named, um, Dutch Menti, he was from, he's also from Berlin. He must have been a pretty good player. He scored eight goals in that of the 13 that Portage Lake scored that night. Uh, the team went undefeated that year, and they beat Pittsburgh for the U.S. championship. So this is the U.S. champion of 1903. Well, Gibson and D started to realize, you know, we could actually get a better team. And play even better teams uh and so they recruit they went back to Canada or recruited a bunch of Canadians and to get them to spend the winter in Houghton they said we will actually openly pay you to play hockey if you if you come to Houghton and so this was the difference there was always when amateurs there was in Canada, concern over being amateur. So teams didn't want to let on they were paying anybody. There may have been under-the-table payments, but they were always very secretive. Because if you found that your team was being paid, you were no longer amateur, and you were no longer eligible for the Stanley Cup. So there's a lot of under-the-table payments that took place. But Gibson and D said, we will openly pay you to play hockey. If you come and spend your winter in Houghton. Now, you've probably picked out Gibson is in the front, middle of the seated here. And this is D right here. This is D. These two gentlemen here are the Stewart brothers. They remember the top players of that, of that era. Everyone in here, all the players except for one, are from Canada. The one lone player here is Joe Linder. He was a high school player uh, in Hancock, Michigan, and Gibson was quite impressed. He ended up being kind of a spare. He only played two or three games, but he was there on photo day. Joe Linder went on and, and helped develop hockey in Duluth area and is actually in the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame. So I just completed a story, and I just got a note yesterday that it's been accepted for the UP readers, so you can read more about Joe Linder then the next edition of the UP Reader. So this team won 24 games and lost two. Uh, and then that's, uh, they started to wear the green and white uh, of, of the time. So uh, they won the U.S. Championship again. There was talk here by many Well, the rules are kind of changing a little bit for Stanley Cup. Maybe we could challenge for the Stanley Cup. Well, before they could get in a challenge for the Stanley Cup, a team from Montreal challenged Portage Lake. Uh, uh, the team from Montreal, they were one of the top teams in Canada. They called themselves the Champions of Canada. The Portage Lake team was the U.S. champion. So Portage Lake accepted the challenge, and it was to be played at the Amphagrome on two days in March in, uh, for what was billed as the World's Championship. And, uh, in the book, you'll see a copy of this. You can read all the fine print and uh, special rates uh, on the streetcars, special rates on the trains to get to it. Um, all kinds of different specials to bring the, bring the uh, people to the game. Now, the uh, uh, Portage Lake won the first game, 8-4, and they won the second game, 9-2. So they are really the world's championship champion in 1904. Well, in the summer of 1904, Dee promoted the idea of a professional hockey league. He convinced several entrepreneurs that you could actually make money uh, playing hockey. If you charge, you can make some money. And so he, uh, the initial plans were to form a, a hockey league. He invited several entrepreneurs. He, there were some interests from Minneapolis, St. Paul, Chicago, St. Louis, were all expressed some interest. But when it got down to it, they were gonna call it the American Hockey Association, but the um, um, Sioux Canada said they'd like to join. And so at the la- in late November, Sioux Canada said, we'd like to join. So it was, became the International Hockey League, the IHL. It was really the first professional hockey league. And these are the five teams that were in that league. Portage Lake or Houghton, Calumet, Sioux, Michigan, Sioux, Canada, and Pittsburgh. In the book, we give you a little background, but I might as well share with you now, is Portage Lake, uh, Houghton had a population of about 4,000 in 1904. Hancock was about 6,000. So about 10,000 lived in the Hope Hancock area. The Calumet area was about 35,000. A lot larger it is today. The Sioux, Michigan at the time was about 11,000. Sioux, Canada was about 6,000. And Pittsburgh was over 300,000. So the uh, and all players were openly paid to play hockey. The um, And and virtually all the players were were from Canada. These are the the sweaters of the uh, the five teams. You can probably pick them out. Uh, Portage Lake in the green and white. Calumet in the uh, gray with the the red trim. The uh, Sioux, Michigan is the purple. The red and white is Sioux, Canada. And Pittsburgh is the uh, purple. Now, Calumet... uh, uh, played in the new Palestra. so they built an arena uh, for the for the Calumet team. It had seating for about three thousand. It's located uh, in Lorien, uh near the uh, the Copper Range uh, Copper Range Railroad just ran right by by the arena. Here, here's the arena, Copper Range Railroad. Here, so it was easy to get from Houghton up to the Calumet net to the to the game. And the streetcar was just a few blocks away. Uh, the, today, the, it's in the area of the Gip Arena, if you're familiar with Calumet or with Lorian. And the first game uh, was played in the middle of December, 1904. Now, uh, the Sioux, Michigan, because it's the UP group, I thought, well, well the, the Portage Lake played at the Amphrodrome. The Sioux, Michigan played in the Ridge Street Ice Sertorium. Uh, and this is the Isatorium here. This is the canal park, so you can see the lock here. And this is the Iroquois Hotel. It burned down shortly after uh, uh, this photo was taken. But that's where they played in, in uh, now it was a converted curling rink that had some posts in the middle. So there were some restricted sight lines and some challenges playing in a curling rink with posts uh, down the middle of the ice. The Calumet surprised everybody. They were the league's first champion, and and the the most famous person in here is this gentleman right in the back. His name is Hod Stewart. Uh, he was the he was the manager of the Pleasure. He was the captain. He was the star. He was everything for the Calumet team. Uh, an outstanding player. Um, we could probably spend a half hour talking about him. You'll, you're just going to have to buy the book to read more about him. But he had ended up uh, there for a couple of years. He returned to Canada and he was killed, a, died in a young age in a, in a diving accident. Um, but, uh, anyways, there, this is Hod Stewart. And there are a few others that are in the Hockey Hall of Fame. This, in the, in the second year of the league, This is the the Porties Lake team won it. I'm just going to note a couple of players in here that you want to read more about or maybe have heard about. One is uh, Fred Taylor. He became known as Cyclone Taylor when he he returned to Canada after his days in uh, playing playing in the league. He was the highest paid athlete at the time. Many have probably heard about Wayne Gretzky he was the Wayne Gretzky of that era. The other person over here is Joe Hall. He was the leading scorer that year, but he also led the he also led the league in in uh, penalty minutes. His nickname was Bad. Um, he played just one year and then re- then went to Canada and had a lo- had a long career in Canada. A couple of side stories on Joe Hall here. You know, you can read them in the book, but Joe Hall ended up playing for the Montreal Canadiens against the Seattle Metropolitans in the 1919 Stanley cup finals. Now everybody probably remembers what happened in 1919 during the Stanley cup finals. They were never completed because of the Spanish flu epidemic in Seattle. Several players died. Joe Hall died. Um, so, and there's a few other stories you can read about Joe Hall and in the book as how he got his name bad. So he was a rugged player, but uh, uh, those are two I just point out in that. And there's more stories on some of these players in the book. Now the inner oh uh, Portage Lake one. Well, maybe I should back up here first and just uh, tell you what the salaries were. The salaries, I uh, say they were. They were openly paid. Each player was negotiating his salary. And so on average it was about $50 a game that they would make uh, to play. Better players would make a little more. So they would typically make uh, an average player would make a thousand to $1,200 for the season of 24 games. And uh, better players would make more like, Cyclone Taylor or uh, Fred Taylor, he was making probably 3,000, 4000 dollars a year to play. When he returned to Canada a couple of years later, he was making six and 7,000 dollars a year to play. Uh, to give you some idea, an average miner at the time was making uh, probably four, 400 to 600 dollars a year working a 60-hour week. So these, these players were fairly well paid at the time for the amount of work. And uh, when they came to the Copper Country, it was just to play hockey. Some of them got some side jobs working in the stores or something, but they just basically returned to Canada in the, in the summers. Portage Lake also won the uh, championship in the, the, in the third season of the league, too. So. Now, the, the, uh, the league itself, there was topic expansion after every season. There were uh, they, cities or towns that were mentioned. Well, let's ex- they explored was Duluth, Minnesota. Uh, Marquette even uh, talked about a, maybe a joining the league. New York City, St. Louis, Minneapolis talked about, and St. Paul, all talked about joining the league, but they never did. The league operated for three seasons. Um, they were being, a tr- uh, several professional leagues started to realize, oh, we could make some money in Canada playing hockey. And several leagues formed, so they were paying more money to come back to Canada, and also they could sell the idea. Well, you'd be able to play for the Stanley Cup. These are the National Hockey Association was primarily in the Montreal, Quebec City, Ottawa area. Ontario's Professional League was in Toronto, Waterloo uh, area, and the Pacific Coast League was you can kind of guess it out on the west coast with Victoria and Vancouver. And there were some others, too. Now, there are several famous players uh, that played in the league. Um, there are actually almost 100 players that played in the, in the league over that three years. Uh, some only played a few games. But there are there, the, these are a few of the, the famous players, and there's many more that I've summarized in the Houghton book. Um, twelve of the players that played in the league are actually in the hockey hall of fame in Toronto. And I think just about everyone except Bill Taylor here are, are in the in the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. Bill Taylor has a good story. He played out of in Sault Ste. Marie and uh, some good stories about him. I think he was charged with murder for of his wife. So it's a, there's a story about him. So we piqued your interest. Um now, the CBC a few years ago, they did a, a documentary series, uh, uh, Hockey of People's History, and one of the episodes is of what the – episode two is of The Money Game, and that talks about the, the – um, uh, Fred Taylor and his pursuit or role to getting to the Copper Country and that league. So it's about a half hour uh, – it, it, you can find it on YouTube if you just – uh, YouTube uh, episode two, um, the money game. You can you can view the story. It actually plays continuously at the uh, D Stadium uh, in uh, in Houghton. Now we'll get you back to the Stanley Cup. In in uh, 1908, the a new trophy was introduced for the best amateur team in Canada. Remember the Stanley Cup originally was for the best amateur team in Canada. Well, it was replaced by the The Allen Cup, this is uh, and then rules started to change to allow professional teams to challenge for the Stanley Cup. So it wasn't just for the best amateur team. We could have some uh, initially said, well, you had to declare which players were professional on your team or which ones you're paying, which ones are amateur basically became uh, all professional teams. This is a, a Stanley version of the Stanley Cup of that that era. It remained as a challenge trophy uh, until 1914 and then 1915 it became a competition trophy between the winners of the National Hockey Association and the Pacific Coast Hockey Association and that started in 1915. So I probably should leave you with a trivia question now that you can impress your friends Uh, who's the first US team to play in the Stanley Cup finals and the hint. It was in 1916, and the team from the from the National Hockey Association was the Montreal Canadiens. Well, everybody's running through what were the teams in the Pacific Coast League at the time. Did anybody guess that, that it was the Portland Rosebuds? It was the Portland Rosebuds that were the first uh, U.S. team to play for the Stanley Cup. And a couple of years later, a US team won the Stanley Cup. Well, they beat the Montreal Canadiens in 1917. Well, it wasn't the Rosebuds, it was the Seattle Metropolitans. So that's kind of exciting now when these new Seattle franchises return to the National Hockey League. So there's a couple of trivia questions you can test your friends on. Now, the Stanley Cup or the National Hockey Association became the National Hockey League in 1917. Um, they basically disbanded the National Hockey Association because they didn't like the owner of the Toronto, Toronto franchise. So they they got rid of them and then reformed the National Hockey League. The Pacific Coast League and uh, folded, went out of business. So the Stanley Cup became the famous trophy in 1927. And this is a look at what the trophy looked like in 1927, the stovepipe look for the Stanley Cup. Well, yeah, many people talk about the original six. Well, that's, that's something different in the National Hockey League. When the National Hockey League was founded in 1917, there were, there were uh, five franchises that were granted. I mentioned the Toronto franchise. They didn't like uh, the owner of the previous one. So they didn't, they, uh, somebody else stepped up and it was with the Toronto team. The Montreal Canadians and the Montreal Wander, the Montreal Wander started the season, but within a few weeks of the start of the season, their arena burnt down. So they didn't finish the season. The Quebec Bulldogs were granted a franchise, but they decided to postpone joining the league. So in 1917, the National Hockey League ended with three teams, the Montreal Canadiens, the Montreal Wanderers, and the Toronto Arenas. And tying it back in, in that uh, the Montreal Canadiens won the first season. they, They played Seattle Metropolitans for the Stanley Cup and were beaten by the Senate by the Metropolitans. Now, the the National Hockey League expanded to the United States in the early 1920s. The earliest teams were Boston and the New York Americans. There were several teams added and folded. The Detroit Cougars joined in 1926. They used to be the Victoria Cougars of the Pacific Coast League. They became the Falcons and then became the Red Wings. So the original in 1942, at the end of the 1942 season, a St. Louis team uh, folded. And so there are only six teams left. And so what many talk about the original six of the National Hockey League were the six teams in the NHL between 42 and 1967. And in 1967, they added six more teams. So there are 12 teams for a number of years, and today there are 32 teams. So, so the, the Stanley Cup today is a little, looks a little different than the original ones, but it is a, a very unique uh, trophy. It has the names of the players that are on each team. And there's a process of how many rings they can have on the trophy and so on, but it is a pretty special trophy. Well, after the professional leagues left the copper country amateur hockey really still flourished in the, in the copper country. There are many teams and many leagues. Uh, Some of the best amateur teams, the best high school teams were in the copper country at that, in that era. The 1913 Portage Lake team was the U S senior amateur champion. This is a look at that team. Um, The, uh, and they, uh, they won the championship. There was no trophy at the time. So in December of 1913, James McNaughton donated a trophy for the best amateur team in the United States. At the time, McNaughton was the superintendent and general manager of the Calumet and Hecla uh, company in Calumet. Now to tie in a few other things, the Coliseum opened in 1913. It uh, uh, now the news of McDonald's donation for the trophy and the opening of the Coliseum was uh, was really not covered much because everybody in this audience knows what a- a- else happened on Christmas Eve of, of 1913, the Italian Hall disaster. So it uh, <clears throat> it didn't have the coverage at the time. The uh, you can see that the first, uh, skating and dancing was to take place at the Coliseum uh, late December. A couple of years ago, this Calumet was named Hockeyville in the United States in an exhibition game. But the Calumet Coliseum is the oldest continually operating ice arena in the world. It is still, it's, they've had hockey at this arena every year since, since it opened in 1913. To tie in the rest of the story here. The plestra, as the plestra in Lorium, because of the Coliseum being built closer to, say, downtown Red Jacket or Calumet, uh, the plestra in Lorium kind of fell in disuse. So some investors from Marquette bought it, bought the plestra, took it all apart, and moved it to Marquette and rebuilt it in Marquette and it opened in 1922. It's on Fair Street. Uh, just, just uh, west of the Berry Event Center is where it was located. Many veterans remember playing in the palestra. The, the original Amphrodrome was destroyed in, in a fire uh, in 1927, and it was rebuilt through the efforts of Dee uh, and called the new Amphrodrome. And then the uh, Michigan Tech bought the Amphrodrome, bought the new Amphrodrome in 1942 and renamed it D Stadium. This is uh, a photo of it when it was the uh, new Amphrodrome. Well, we better tie in a little bit about Michigan Tech, hockey at Michigan Tech. Uh, I mentioned Gibson helped with uh, a, a few cl- players in the early 19, uh, early 1901, in, in the game. But the first uh, official I called it official team at at uh, Michigan Tech which was fall of 1920. The student council at the time had formed and one of their tasks was we should have an official varsity hockey team and so uh, they they uh, they asked the fellow in the back here to be the manager of that team and so he went out and he got some ice time for practice and games at the Amphrodrome. He went out and canvassed the business community in Houghton to buy uniforms and equipment for the team. The fellow's name was Endicott Lovell. He was was a little older. Uh, He actually was on student council too. He was a little older, but the interesting thing, he's the son-in-law of James McNaughton. So in the book, you'll read uh, later what happened and some of these things after. When the, when the uh, McNaughton Cup was turned over to the Western Collegiate Hockey Association, they had to go to Endicott Lovell, who became president of the Calumet and Hecla Mining Company to get their approval. The the first game for the Michigan College of Mines was held, or first college game was played against the University of Michigan. And you see at the Amphrodrome. On Thursday, January the 27th, a little over 100 years ago. And at the time, what was always the rules of time is that the games had it would start at 8 and they'd have a definite time at the end. And quite often what they would do to attract a larger group of fans, they would have uh, dancing after. it. So you can see here, this is one of those games that had dancing. So unescorted ladies, if they came after the game, they could get in for a little less. Now, the Michigan College of Mines beat Michigan that night. They beat them 3-0. The next night, the two teams played at the at the Coliseum in Calumet. Michigan beat the Michigan College of Mines 4-3 the next night. And uh, the reason they played in, in uh, Calumet, there were several players on the Calumet team from, or several, Players on the Michigan team from Calumet. The next weekend, they played Notre Dame. The first game was played at the Amphrodrome. Michigan College of Mines won 7 2. The second game was played at the Coliseum. Uh, Notre Dame won 3 2. The reason they did that, there were several players from the Copper Country, from Calumet area, played, played on the uh, Notre Dame team. So it's really over 20 years, 100 years that the the Michigan Tech hockey team has been playing. I just jotted down a couple things. They've been to the the NCAA tournament 13 times. There's been over 800 players that have played for the Huskies in that time. Uh, More than 50 have played in the NHL. Three former Huskies have been head coaches in the NHL. And three former Huskies have played on the Stanley Cup championship team. So kind of brings things together. So my next project after the Houghton book was one on Michigan Tech. I was asked if I had found my way around the archives, if I could uh, put something together for uh, Michigan Tech. And this just came out this week. So it's a a kind of a look at um, 100 years of memories of Michigan Tech hockey. Uh, uh, Victor is a, is a Michigan Tech alum and he probably did to start it. We were, we were talking about sharing your memories. Um, and really what we tried to do is that tech hockey has, has created memories for teams, for players, for fans. Uh, and I just trying to capture some of those with a lot of stats and who won what and, and office in a book. So. say It was released this week. So yeah, lots of, uh, of Tech uh, memories over those 100 years. Um, that's uh, ready for a whole new presentation in the future about Michigan Tech hockey. Um, I've actually, I was telling Victor, I've even included a couple of pages so you can write the last two two or three pages of the book yourself and include your memories. So tonight, I just focused on, on as the, the background to the sign as you come into Houghton, the birthplace of professional hockey now I guess I should just to finish it off is where can you get these books uh, the Houghton book are yeah. primarily sold in the local uh, Copper Country area uh, one there are books available in uh, at Snowbound in, in Marquette uh, but in the Houghton area uh, the main bookstores uh, Copper, Copper World Grandpa's Barn um, I found Michigan Tech, Northwinds Books in uh, part of Finlandia. The probably the easiest place to get the Houghton book uh, is through the Michigan Tech bookstore. They'll they'll send it to you. Uh, just go on their their website and they handle all the, the sales tax and the and the mailing. So the Michigan Tech book, the, your other, your best place to get it right now would be uh, through the Michigan Tech bookstore. And you can get it online. In the next few weeks, it'll be out into some of the local bookstores. So, um, and then just a process set up that who knows where it's going to go. But the reading hour I, think I it's it was kind of developed as a a benefit uh, book for the hockey program. So all the proceeds proceeds go back to the uh, Michigan Tech hockey program. So um, oh, that's my task was my time was free, and I paid. I actually have one of the editors uh, on the call here. Brandy took a first look at it. You may not recognize it, Brandy, but uh, it's, uh, you took a look at it and (laughs) provide some input along the way. Um, The, uh, and, and I did uh, lined up a whole bunch of things and I just turned it over to them. So they're doing the Michigan Tech Athletic Department is doing all of the, uh, the, the marketing and distribution for that book. So. We've, ha- we've actually also discovered some good places to sell books. Um, Michigan Made has been a good one. You don't, you just don't sell them at bookstores. You find, oh, there's other places that unsuspecting buyers come in and will buy it. And a couple of the grocery stores would hope were a good spot too. So it's, uh, anyways, those are the two books. Uh, um, thank you. It's kind of a good story to tell. Uh, you almost have to buy the book now to get the Warner on these two stories that's i guess that's what you're supposed to do is in these talks is get everybody excited (laughs) by your book so uh there may be some questions uh that uh, that come up i'll see if i can handle them does anybody have any questions bill can you talk about how the rules evolved from that simple one pager to to more complex sure sure the uh the uh i had I took those slides out, uh, but basically, uh, the rules that were used in the in the International Hockey League are what the Quebec rules. There were Montreal rules. There were uh, Ontario Hockey League rules. There were a number of different rules at the time, but the the some of the basic rules that were used in the International Hockey League. There were seven players on the ice. There was a goalie, a point, and cover point. That would we would call those defensemen now. At that time, they play one defenseman in front of the other. We now usually defensemen side by side. There were three forwards, the center, the left wing, and the right wing. And then there was a rover. Your, your defenseman would just stay in the one end. Your forwards would just stay in the other end. And the rover would go anywhere he wanted to. That was usually your best player. They played 60-minute games, two 30-minute halves, running time with a 10-minute break. So everything was going to be over in an hour and 10 minutes. So that's where you could schedule the dance, the band, and everything. <laughs> there were no substitutions. The players played the entire game. So that's why you'll see the photos with so few players in it. Um, and I mentioned Joe Linder. He was there for photo day. He sat on the bench for, for two or three games because they didn't need him. But he was there just in case, because when a player was injured, the other team would be requ- required to, by gentlemen's agreement, to drop a player or okay a substitute to, to come and play in his place. There were no lines on the ice. There were no forward passes allowed. So you advance the, hmm. the puck by skating and stick handling, and drop, drop, uh, use a drop or a back pass. So, so, you would skate, say, behind the net, then you would, the Gretzky maneuver, take out space behind the net and then pass it in front. The wingers would stay behind the puck carrier. The referee set a bell. The length of the penalties would be decided by the referee, anywhere from one minute to two minutes to five minutes. The goalies must maintain a standing position. There's no sitting lying or kneeling. And if they did, they were given a penalty. And so those are some of the rules. The, the Rover disappeared with some of these new leagues and uh, the uh, National Hockey Association got rid of the Rovers. They could save some money by not having to pay that player. Um, then they, they went to the uh, uh, three 20 minute periods to because the ice was getting pretty worn out with the, with the two halves so, and the rules keep evolving. But uh, those are some of the basic ones at the time. And uh, we've included some of the details in the book too. So you can, you can look at the technical interpretation of it all but those are some of the basic things at the time. So good Thank question, you. Victor. Well,
1: I know I'm gonna buy a copy of that new book um, tomorrow for our library. And um, does anyone else have any other questions before we sign off till next month?
3: Okay, well, yeah, I have, well hang on, Evelyn, I've got one question go real quick. <clears throat> just watching, you know, what he's covered so far, there's some very interesting things. The first one, you're just talking about the, um, the back passes and stuff like that. That sounds very similar to either rugby or soccer. Is that where they generated these rules from?
2: A lot of the rules that uh, originally uh, that uh, were evolved out of field hockey games, and uh, the other one that seems to be lacrosse was one of the ones that they're kind of. But, but uh, a lot of suggested that um, the 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 rules that um, that that um, Creighton developed were just kind of field hockey converted to ice to ice. Now ice polo was quite different. The ice polo or or a roller polo, you would place the the ball in the middle, uh, and and everybody would count, charge from the two ends, and who was there first would get possession of the ball. So that, and then other things happened after that. So, uh, and, and the some other, reason
3: the pads showed up.
2: <laughs> yes, the other thing that was kind of interesting I didn't mention it, is the initial part of hockey. The the referee used to hold his hand over the puck. And he raise his hand when it was time to play. He realized that it was probably a good idea to drop the puck.
3: No kidding. Um, And the last part of that, um, with the barns, the ancient barns, basically the 1906 barns and stuff like that, were they open barns? Because I can't imagine they had refrigeration units to keep that ice cold.
2: Uh, no, every everyone was uh, enclosed uh, was an enclosed barn, and they all had natural ice. So the season basically started in the middle of December and went to about the middle of March. Um, the 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 arena in uh, in Pittsburgh had was one of two artificial ice surfaces in the in the United States. The other one was in New York City at the time. So the arena that was used in Pittsburgh did du- du- Duquesne Gardens. It had, it had uh, artificial ice. So they would schedule a lot of the early season games in Pittsburgh. So good question. Good question. Uh, you, you've probably been to some of those uh, cold arenas and you always wondered about the big, Chris.
3: Oh, definitely. I bet my kids have been in it for 12 years and they play college hockey. And it's like, this is really interesting to hear. So thank you very much for being here.
2: I think what many, uh, you know, there are a number of teams from Southeast Michigan that venture up into D Stadium and uh, the Coliseum now are just amazed by those two arenas. And the two places have a a lot of photos, a lot of history, but the uh, team, high school teams from the Southeast Michigan just enjoy That trip so much, it's just kind of a step back in time.
3: Oh, there's no doubt about it. Thank you very much for being here tonight too.
2: Anyone else?
3: questions
1: oh sure ask your question mom Chris
4: it um, Chris behind you what is that picture or is it a picture
2: I think I have a photo of oh you're asking Chris I'm weird.
4: <laughs> you see that it looks like a maybe a hockey goalie or something
2: He's he's on the end of the end of the rink at the time and uh, um okay yeah that is the the trick of uh of uh zoom background i think exactly
3: that's what it was i went looking on the internet for a a hockey background and this is what came up for zoom and it's like that's perfect i grew up in montana so i get the mountains and everything else in the background that's awesome
1: extra credit for you chris you brought you brought a good background to whip tonight
3: (laughs) Thank you very much. And at, at that point, I'm going to ask for Mr. Sproul to send me a signed copy of his book.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, everyone that, where, where do you live, Chris?
3: Grand Rapids, of Michigan.
2: Oh, okay. I'll send you a copy. Uh, yeah. My email was on the first slide, wsproul at mtu.edu. So if you send me where to send it, I'll. Uh, All right.
3: I can do that. Thank you so much. I appreciate this, you being here.
2: It's going to cost you 20 bucks, though.
3: Hey, what I got to do, I got to do, you know?
2: <laughs> It'll be signed. <laughs> and, and since it's a, it's a UP uh, notable book, it now has a UP notable sticker on it. Yeah. yeah gotcha. I see Margaret's got the copy, and she's got a notable sticker on her book. So <laughs> well, i tell you the, what. Our, every, our book I've signed, every book that's gone out is signed, so... Is you that, can tell me what you want, and I'll even personalize it for you. Well, the, wanted,
3: tro- the trolls down that, here appreciate it.
2: Well, I'm, a, I'm actually a troll now myself. Uh, we actually moved to the Brighton, Michigan area. So,
4: William, Bill, or whatever you Bill, go by. Bill. <laughs> is this your signature?
2: Uh, yes, it is.
4: Okay. I never would have <laughs> figured that.
2: <laughs> well, uh, there's one We're thing <laughs> A hockey but, player a high if you ever notice a hockey player it's always a scroll just a scribble with a number
4: okay uh, well i did order it out of the houghton town
2: store so good good so so one can one can order them and the and the uh uh out uh, of of uh, copper rule has also been a great spot to uh to buy the book and they have a quite an online presence too so great well you know
4: i find that uh it's really disheartening that i couldn't get it through my local library here in escanaba and oh my gosh and then when they tried to put it on hold uh, for me from within the system um you know i called like last week and it still wasn't there and i wasn't going to be on the list so i called the bookstore and i thought okay i'm gonna buy it <laughs> um, when, when, when you about- I know nothing about what you what you talked about, but it was so interesting. I am so happy that I listened to it.
2: Well, now you, you know much more. Nice. I do.
4: And I have a grandson-in-law that played hockey up in um, a Superior on, a Superior State up in uh, Sault Ste. Marie. And okay. so I'm anxious to be able to show them the book, him the book, and talk to him
2: about it. So thank I mean, you. I spent a couple of years at Lake State in State before and then transferred for the last two years at Tech. So uh, my claim to fame there is uh, it became uh, Lake Superior State the first fall I was there. So I was on the, car- the cartoonist. So I designed a, a logo to try, a, a, a cartoon character to try and generate a logo. So for, oh. for a number of years, the drunken sailor was the, uh, the logo until they adopted the anchor. Oh.
4: Well, I'll that's, have awesome. to that's great. That's just wonderful. Oh,
1: well, it was a nice chat tonight, everybody. And for those of you who um, put on the chat that you need that other book, I'll send it to you. And thank you so much, William. Good luck with the new book. I hope it sells out like your last one did.
2: Well, we're hoping that every Rishka Tech alum is going to buy, so we're going to have to print more. But uh, it's uh, we were fortunate uh, we had... Uh, had uh, somebody underwrite the cost of production of the printing and I just donated my time and, uh, and some of the costs. And, uh, so the, the, it benefits the Michigan tech coffee program. So. Wonderful.
1: Okay. Thank you everybody. We hope to see you in January and have a nice holiday season. Everyone.
0: You've been watching the UP notable books club brought to you by the upper peninsula publisher and authors association. To join or for more information, please visit us at www.upa.org or www.upnotable.com.